0: All right. I don't know who was here. Let's see. Seth and Lydia wasn't here. Okay. All right. So, well, that's going to make it kind of difficult this morning. I, I can't say let's review because uh, nobody here was here. <laughs> so, um, okay i guess i 'll just kind of I guess i 'll just kind of redo what I did last week. Um, so I guess this will be kind of part one done as part two. all right uh, last week, I basically started laying the foundation for an introduction to a book i didn 't name the book i didn 't say which book we're going to be studying i didn 't do any of that because I wanted to focus on the, the, the some foundational principles, and I gave three very important phrases, or, or two of them are words, one of them is a phrase. The first one is the faith. It's the first thing I told everyone to write down, the faith. The second thing I told everyone to write down was the invasion, or invasion. And the third, third thing I told everyone to write down was insurgency or the insurgency. So the faith, you can put down the invasion and the insurgency. Right? We uh, And I, I gave a definition for invasion and insurgency. I won't do that right now, but we focused on the concept, the faith. And what is significant about that phrase, the faith, is it signifies, obviously, a specific faith. faith, A definite faith. Not just faith in general, but the faith. Right? Very important concept, because once you define the faith then you are obviously making a claim that any other faith is fraudulent or false. So this leads to the question, this leads to the idea, not a faith, but the faith. And then, it, then we have to start determining and looking at how the faith is defined. Because if you're going to say the faith, the faith must be defined right? Now, they may may seem like a million miles away from invasion and insurgency, but it has everything to do with this, and it has everything to do with the book that we'll be looking at at some point. So, what we started doing is when we started talking about the faith, we started talking about how that faith is defined, how that faith is defined, and typically within the Protestant world, they will simply say the faith is defined by the Bible, but of course, everyone who quotes the Bible, ultimately in many cases have a completely different faith. And the Arian, I mean, it doesn't matter, you can have a Jehovah's Witness, you can have a Mormon, you can, Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, everyone will say the Bible defines the faith. So sometimes in the Protestant world that leads to lots of problems because in some, in some ways, We can say the Bible defines the faith, but in reality, it's us who defines the faith, which then leads to all kinds of problems, because if we're defining the faith, then is it really the faith or is it our faith? But when we say, so I understand when Protestants say the Bible defines the faith, we'll get to that, but before we can say the Bible defined the faith, I think if we go back into church history, we know there were some definitions of the faith being handed down before there was even a completed canon. So let's let we. I did a lot of church history on this, so we're going to go back and, and just try to look at some of these things. If we start talking about how the faith was er, defined early on, because again, we have to define the faith before we can ever talk about an invasion or an insurgency. The faith would have been, first of all, we, we, could, we could go to the Didache or the Didache, depending on how you want to pronounce it. We, 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 we could mention that, but I think the, the very first most significant definition of the faith would be the Apostles' Creed. So we talked about the importance of the creed. We looked at the creed. The Apostles' Creed is so significant in church history, not only did that start providing a definition for the faith. It also became the basis for uh, catechisms. It became the basis for systematic theology. It became, it became the basis for everything. In fact, in many cases, one could not be baptized until they could recite the creed. The creed really became the definition. It became the definition of the faith. And so the, we could talk about the importance of the creed. So that was a significant development. Then from the creed, we jump to, and again, we, there's lots of debate on the, the, the timing of the, the Apostles' Creed, but we can go from the Apostles' Creed to the First Council of Nicaea in 325. Now we're in 325. Now the church not only takes the Apostles' Creed, but it begins to expand on that concept. And what flows from the Apostles' Creed, it, or, or what flows from the Council of Nicaea, Not only is, in a sense, an expansion of the Apostles' Creed, but they also issue anathemas, defining what the faith is and condemning what the faith isn't. All right, so this becomes very significant. So, so 325. So then we go. So we go from the Apostles' Creed to the Council of Nicaea, or we could, to be technically correct, the First Council of Nicaea to be technically correct. Then we move to the Nicene Creed, which obviously comes from that council. And the Nicene Creed obviously expands and focuses on some key aspects about Christ, his deity, and we, we could go through all of that. So at that point, we have, two, we have two creeds, we have two creeds, and we have a council all there attempting to define it. Now, after 325... After 325, we go from 325 and we jump to 331, 331 AD. Now, in 331 AD, we we get what is known as the 50 Bibles of Constantine. The 50 Bibles of Constantine. Now, the 50 Bibles of Constantine were Bibles in the original Greek language, commissioned in 331 by Constantine. Now this is important because now we're moving past, we're past the Council of Nicaea, we're past the, the establishment of the Nicene Creed, we've already had the Apostles' Creed, now we're really moving into a direction of where we have the church really, you could almost say the church is very critical in defining the faith for those first 325 years, Yes, scripture is being produced during those first 325 years, but we have no established canon. There's a lot there. So the church is really key. Jumping to 331 is a massive shift because now we actually have Bibles being produced. All right? And these, again, these are called the 50 Bibles of Constantine. They were in the original Greek language and they were commissioned in 331. They were uh, prepared by Eusebius of, Ca- of Caesarea. They were made for use of the Bishop of Constantinople and the growing number of churches that in that very new city. Eusebius quoted the letter of commission in his life of Constantine and it is the only surviving source for which we know of the existence of these Bibles. So it's Eusebius... Basically, quoting the letter of commission is how we know these Bibles exist. We have no surviving copies of them, but its significance because it's three thirty-one, and they're giving these Bibles to the bishop for the for the purpose of the church. So this is a kind of a major, kind of a major shift in certain ways, right? I mean, I I know you can go through every little event that happens in church history, but I would say this is a a relatively significant one as far as the faith is being defined by the church. Now the faith is going to start possibly being defined by scripture, at least in theory it is, okay? So those are the, the, the 50 Bibles of Constantine, which is a significant event. Now it is speculated this is very important, that this commission may have provided motivation for the development of the canon list. So the commissioning of these Bibles become critical in the development of the list or of the canon, knowing which books, because again, if if the Bible is going to become the thing that defines the faith, well, you got to know which books are the authoritative books in which, it, in order to get that definition from. So that's why it's impossible to ignore the importance of the church for the first three hundred and twenty-five years. But now we're going to have list of books. Or we're going to have a possible list of the canon. This is also maybe important that this develops, or this provided motivation for the development of the canon list and for Codex Sinaticus, if I can say it correctly, Codex Sinaticus and Codex Vaticanus. In fact, Codex Sinaticus and Codex Vaticanus are possibly the surviving examples of those Bibles. So, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus are possibly the only surviving examples of the fifty Bibles of Constantine. That's going to become very important as we move forward here in a minute. All right. The Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus are their manuscripts, but they also would provide a list of, of what books would be in the canon. The, the 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 50 bibles the 50 bibles of is 331 two different uh two different groups of manuscripts which then gets into textual variants and all kinds of what so yeah i don't want to go i don't want to tr- chase that rabbit too far the 50 bibles the same even though there were two different manuscripts. no no the 50 bibles are the same okay then they give development for the Canon list, and they are also become important in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus because now they're compiling books, they're compiling manuscripts of those books. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a simple way of, of place of, of describing it. All right. And there's more here, but I don't have time to go into all of that. All right, according to Eusebius, Constantine wrote him, uh, Constantine I wrote him in his letter, and I quote I have thought it expedient to instruct your prudence to order fifty copies of the sacred scriptures, the provision and use of which you know to be most needful for the instruction of the church, to be written on prepared parchment and legible manner and in a convenient portable form by professional transcribers thoroughly practiced in the art." About accomplishing the emperor's demand, such were the emperor's commands, which were followed by the immediate execution of the work itself, which we sent him in magnificent and elaborately bound volumes of a threefold and fourfold form. And then you can look for pictures of the threefold form or the fourfold form. And there's all kinds of dispute on exactly how it looked and exactly how it was put together. But the bottom line is, hey, I want these Bibles put together. I want it done by the best people possible. I want it to be done in a legible manner. I want it to be put together in a nice way. And they immediately set to work, and they put them together in some kind of three-fold form or four-fold form, and you can look at what that would look like. They, they immediately started doing, the working on that. And that becomes significant because now you're gathering books for, quote-unquote, a Bible. All right, now that's, that's all of this happening, 331, moving forward. All right? Then that jumps us to 367 A.D. All right? Now 367 A.D. is super significant. Because what happens in 367? No, 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 no. Yeah. Athanasius is going to write a very, very, very most maybe the most significant letter in the history of Christianity as far as uh, the fact, if you think this is important, right. I'm holding up a Bible for those listening online. All right. All right. Let me... uh, So 367, Athanasius basically defines the New Testament. All right. And then I'll read a little bit here. Since you know my will, grant free admission to all those who wish to enter the church. For I hear that you have hindered anyone from becoming a member or have debarred anyone from entrance... I shall immediately send someone to have you deposed at my behest and have you sent into exile. Those are the words of Emperor Constantine, written 328 to Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria. So now, if, so this is just very important so that we understand this. okay? Now, and again, I'm trying to do a review without doing a review, so this is very difficult. All right, so... Um, Athanasius keeps getting himself in trouble, and here's the reason he gets himself in trouble. Athanasius starts deciding, wait a minute, you can't be a part of the church. You can. I'm going to excommunicate you. And he starts really going with this idea, which just makes some of the political leaders very upset. Because why do the political leaders not want there to be divisions amongst the Christians and people being excommunicated and there being division? Because that's going to cause turmoil within the, the empire. They don't want this. So this creates some problems for Athanasius and he keeps getting himself in trouble. But what does it demonstrate? It demonstrate, uh, demonstrates again the attempt to define the faith. To define the faith. And remember, that's, this is going on 328. 328. What is that before? Before the 50 Bibles. The 50 Bibles what else? It's right after the Council of Nicaea, but it's before the 50 Bibles. So this has still got the church trying to make the definition. The church still trying to define what is the faith? What is the faith? Nope, you're not a part of it. Nope, you are. Nope, you. So this is why the council is going to be needed, and this is going to become important for uh, the 50 Bibles. All right? Um, Athanasius had not followed Constantine's growing interest in basically kind of an ecumenical concept. Constantine wants everyone to be one. He wants everyone to get along, and Athanasius doesn't necessarily like this concept, right? Instead, he had insisted upon excluding from the church anyone. Now, this, this comes a little bit now. Now, this is going to move forward in time. Uh, basically, Athanasius decides, I'm going to exclude anyone from the church who do not subscribe to the, council, to the Creed of Nicaea. Right. basically Athanasius decides, okay, I'm going to get rid of anyone. If you don't if you don't go with the uh, the the Nicene Creed, you're gone. You're 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 out. There's no there's no place for you here. Now this is going to create some some conflict and some problems, but it's the church defining it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. He's very, he's very significant in in, in, these, in these situations, all right? Now, as a result, uh, Athanasius was deposed in 335 and exiled, all right? So he, he gets exiled all the time, all right? Two years later, after Constantine's death, he returned to Alexandria, but he was removed from power again in 339. So he comes back, he gets exiled, he comes back. He's constantly doing this, all right? He returned in 346, Only to be exiled three more times for various reasons, Athanasius finally resumed his uh, his place as bishop in three sixty six, which he held until his death in three seventy three at the age of seventy eight. So he would he would be exiled, he'd come back, be exiled, he'd come back, be exiled and come back. But all of that demonstrates what was happening at the time: turmoil, fighting. Defining the faith. That's what I keep trying to drive, drive, drive into your head. They were trying to define the faith. And who gets to define the faith? Whoever's in charge. <laughs> Whoever's in charge gets, that is very important from a, a, a church history perspective. Whoever was in charge defined the faith. Sometimes it was political. This is the whole merging of church and state, which is why... It's insane that Christians today keep thinking that that's a good idea because you want politicians defining the faith? No. And so people say, well, no, we want the church telling the government and then the government will go with the faith that we tell them to... It, it doesn't ever work that way. You want the government kept as far away from it as possible. So, it, th- this is just a constant struggle. Define the faith. Who's defining the faith? Who gets to define the faith? What is the faith? All right? Now, Perhaps, and then there's a lot more here that we could talk about. Um, Perhaps Athanasius' single most influential writing, however, was his 39th festal letter of 367. It had been customary after Epiphany each year, the Christian festival held 12 days after Christmas, for the bishops of Alexandria to write a letter in which the dates of Lent and Easter were fixed and thus all other festivals of the church in that year. These letters were also used to discuss other matters of general interest. Athanasius wrote 45 festal letters. 13 have survived in complete in Syriac translation. The 39th has been reconstructed by scholars from Greek, Syriac, and Coptic fragments. It contains a list of the books of the Old and New Testaments, which Athanasius describes as being canonical. The New Testament list is identical with the 27 writings we still accept as canonical And thus, Athanasius' 39 festal letter has been regarded as the first authoritative statement on the canon of the New Testament. Athanasius wrote the list to end disputes about the following. The Shepherd of Hermas, the Epistle of Barnabas, which long had been regarded as equal to the apostolic letters. He also silenced those who had questioned the apostolic authenticity of Peter's letters or the book of Revelation. Athanasius states that in these writings alone, please note, that in these writings alone are, is the teaching of godliness is, uh, the teaching of godliness is proclaimed. No one may add to them, and nothing may be taken away from them. Now that becomes the, like, the most significant event in, in church history. Really, in some cases, some say the Council of Nicaea, some may say the Protestant Reformation. You don't even get to a Protestant Reformation without this. You don't, you don't get anywhere. Now, why is this significant? Because I'm trying to show you what was happening leading up to this. There was fighting and arguing about how to define the faith, yes? Now, the Council of Nicaea in 325, you think, would have solved it. But in some ways, it didn't, right? Because what's happening after the Council of Nicaea? Athanasius, When well, now they're arguing about books. Athanasius gets, boom, exiled. He gets brought back. He gets thrown out. He gets thrown back, back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, because everyone's trying to define the faith. Some want, hey everybody, just get along. Others are like, no, I don't care about getting along. What is the faith? How is the faith defined? So let me think. Let me go through this again. The faith was defined at least in the first three hundred years. You cannot ignore, deny the church. You cannot. I mean, any any Protestant that tries to deny that is just like you're living in fantasy land. There was no canon. So the church was making the, the, the definition. You could say, who is defining the Think of it this way. Who is defining, right after, think of, the, think of this. After Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, who's defining the faith at the, at the first? The apostles, right? They're writing letters, yes. okay. They're writing letters, but they're the ones defining the faith. Okay? And some of those letters, we, we, some of them are not written, you know, Hebrews is not written to almost 70 A.D. Right? I mean, you look at some of the dating. Some of them are not written until 50-something. Yeah, I mean, you know, so you're, sometimes you're 20, 30, 40 years after the fact. Yeah. So, uh, so clearly the, that it was going to be defined by the apostles. That comes to apostolic authority, all of that. Okay. Then, as you move forward, the church obviously takes some formal role in defining the faith. You have the creed, Right? Not only do you have the creed, you now we could put put in the Didache at some point because some people some people argue that the Didache belonged in in Scripture. I mean, there was a major argument for that to be to be Scripture. Right. Then you come up to the Council. Then you have the next creed. Okay, and then you really it's just you know it's an interesting shift because you start seeing this. Well, we need it's almost like we need Scripture. So Constantine's like, here's fifty Bibles. But there's still argument about which books belong. Athanasius offers an, what we, now you could argue authoritative, Not I mean, we get into a whole argument here about church history, but he offers a dogmatic, let's say this, a dogmatic assertion that what the books we have in our Bible right now, this is it, and what can you not do? So he does what? He defines it, and he closes it. He defines and he closes it. Now, one document supports Athanasius' position. Guess what document seems to support his position? Codex Vaticanus in the Vatican Library, a Greek codex of Old and New Testaments. It consists of the same books in the same order as an Athanasius Festal Letter, why is that significant? Well, remember uh, what I told you: possibly is a surviving copy, or ba- maybe a basis of of Constantine's fifty Bibles, Codex Vaticanus. So this may be, some argue Codex Vaticanus is kind of the survivor of Constantine's 50, one of his 50 Bibles. It basically becomes Codex Vaticanus. That's kind of an argument there, which would show what? That there was, I, I think Stephen said it, there's a kind of a consistency here maybe of, oh, here these books seem to keep rising to some level beyond the other books. All right? Um. Now this is particularly noteworthy, given the peculiar order: Gospels, Acts, what's sometimes referred to as the Catholic epistles, James, first and second uh, Peter, first and third John and Jude. Uh, uh, Pauline epistles including Hebrews. Now, we could get into an argument. Should that be called a Pauline Epistle? Including Hebrews between 2 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy and Revelation. In other words, it's basically the exact order that we have it, which was a peculiar order. So this order seems to be like, well, wait a minute. Not only were these books, there was almost the same order starting to formulate, which is an interesting development. Like, why is is this starting to happen? Which is demonstrating that maybe these books were... Being treated differently than some of the other books and the order had, you know, seemed to be important. All right. Okay. Um, 331. Remember we have the 50, uh, the 50 Bibles of Constantine? Yeah. 331. Now, this is important. Codex Vaticanus was probably put together in Rome in 340. By Alexandrian scribes for Emperor uh, Constans during Athanasius' seven year exile in the city. It was thus, it would thus predate the festal letter. Even though Athanasius was probably not far away when the Codex Vaticanus was written, one realizes that the establishment of the canon was not a sudden decision made, you, you know, just by just a bishop in Alexander, but it was a process of careful investigation, deliberation. Documented in a codex of, a Greek, of the Greek Bible, and 27 years later, in a festal letter. All right? That way, that's the that's the argument. Well, and they think that, so they really think this goes back to Constantine, the 50 Bibles of Constantine. They think that's really where this starts. That leads to Codex Vaticanus. Codex Vaticanus obviously influences Athanasius, and now we have the form- formulation of the canon. I know that may be an oversimplification, and I'm leaving out a million other issues that could be brought up about the form- forming of the canon. Remember, you talk about the forming of the canon, it's, uh, there's massive, never-ending madness trying to figure it all out. Well, I think, what I think is happening, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just speculating here, all right? The church was the one trying to define everything, yes? The church is the one defining the faith. And a shift seems to take place starting in 331, right? With Constantine's Bible. And the shift seems to be like, all right, we need scripture. We need scripture. I'm not saying that that was the exact words they used, but there seems to be a shift now you have the formulation of canon list Codex uh, Vaticanus, uh, Synaticus. You have you have a shift. Then you have uh, then Athanasius' Festal Letter. I think there's a move movement here that's beginning to turn the attention to Scripture. I think that that's somewhat significant. Now we do have to be honest about something, though, right? Because I could have stopped right there. I could have stopped right there and everybody would be like, okay, well, that's great. That's not... The the, 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 the canon, that's not too controversial, right? We have the church. We have Constantine's Bible. We have Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. We have Athanasius' festival letter. The canon is closed. All the problems are solved, right? That Everybody would be happy with that? Yes? All right. But it's not quite that easy, all right? It's not that... <laughs> It's not that easy, all right? Here's This is very important, all right? All right, um, let's see here. Athanasius' view did not meet with unanimous support. Not even at Alexandria. That's frustrating, but it demonstrates... What, what, what have I always said that's been true of 2,000 years? Christians can't agree on... Anything, but we are always so arrogant and dogmatic that we are always right and everyone else is wrong. Okay? That's the one thing one thing Christianity is good at. Everyone else is wrong, but but we're right. Okay. But there's still not even agreement. Even after Athanasius is like, this is it. There's still not agreement. You want to know some of the things that happen here? All right. Uh, let me see here. Some 20 years after, 20 years after the 39th festal letter was written, the Alexandrian scholar Didymus, the blind, did not accept 2nd and 3rd John as canonical, but he fully backed and quoted 2nd Peter, which still was occasionally disputed by others. Didymus also apparently regarded, what books do you think he regarded as being canonical? Shepherd of Hermas. You should know these. Shepherd of Hermas, Epistle of Barnabas, and you got to know the third one. There's three of these you should know. the fourth one I don't I won't I don't expect anyone to know. Everyone should know Shepherd of Hermas. Just know this. Shepherd of Hermas, everyone wanted it to be canonical. Over and 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 over again. H E R M A S. The Epistle of Barnabas. People over and over and over and over and over wanted it to be canonical, and then everybody should know the third one. No, Didache, 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 Didache. Remember, I already told you earlier, the Didache or Didache depending on how you pronounce it. And then the next one, I don't expect you to know this one. Uh, First Cl- uh, Clement. Okay, that's that's okay if you don't know that one, but everybody should know Shepherd of Hermas, Epistle of Barnabas, and the Didache. I mean. Come on, that, that's talked about like in every book ever written in the history of Christianity about the canon. Those are the main ones. That people got. Those, those are the ones everyone wanted added. Yes, At, especially Hermas and Barnabas. Didache I, I, not, doesn't show up in everyone's uh, radar. But yeah. do, I? Uh-huh. do what? Do, uh huh. Do what? Well, who are you going to ask? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Some may say Peter was, okay, but yeah. But uh I mean uh I think you could argue that he was. Okay. All right. And there were many such examples of divergence of opinion all over the empire, both in the east and in the west. However, if after the end of the 4th century, such occasional divergences of opinion have not altered the received tradition. So by the time you get to the end of the 4th century, I'm not saying it's settled, but it seems like that all of the arguments are not having any major impact or moving people away from it at any serious level. There's always going to be groups of people who dispute it and go run off and do weird things, but it seems to be the way it goes then according to Christian history, they write the following about all of this. What might have happened had Athanasius and others not established and accepted a closed canon? That's a very important question. What would have happened? Well, Gnostic, theologically unsound writings like the Gospel of Thomas might have crept in, diluting the historical message of Christ with what we would know with what we would now call New Age elements. Or later pressure groups might have excluded writings that did not suit their purpose. Revelation would have clearly been thrown out. Uh, Second Peter would have probably been thrown out, because uh, the Syriac churches tried to get it removed, and we know what Martin Luther wanted removed. James, or at least he didn't like it, okay? There's some d- historical dispute. Did he actually want it removed? We know he didn't like it. All right, let's put it that way. Some let's say in modern times may have argued that Martin Luther King Jr's letter from a Birmingham jail should have been included would be included in the canon because there were people in the 1960s who wanted it included. That's the 1960s. So in other words there, there would there would be there's always been attempts to try to get something added uh to something all right the closed canon that prevails in all christian church churches forms a consensus that prevents such craziness that's my word craziness okay and that canon can be traced back to athanasius and to the year 367 which justly remains they say an important date in church history i will argue Maybe the most significant date in all of church history for a Protestant. For Protestants, because we believe that the faith is defined by what? Scripture. Now, I want to make this very clear. As a Protestant who says the Bible defines the faith, first and foremost, we have to acknowledge the logical fallacy of such claim. Because we say the Bible defines the faith, but in reality, what does that mean? We define the faith based off our interpretation of said Bible, which is why you have thousands and thousands of Protestant groups who cannot agree on literally anything. Okay? We have enough problem getting people to agree on anything inside this room right here. Okay, all right. I can open the Bible and read a verse, and I guarantee you, it doesn't matter if you've studied it doesn't matter if you ever care to study it i will get a different opinion within minutes okay that is that is the most discouraging thing in the history of mankind but it is the it is just the truth it is just the truth and we can't deny that right we cannot deny that how do we fix that well the only way to fix it is is First, you've got to have people who don't study the text stop talking and acting like you know what it says if you haven't studied it. There should be, like a, there should be a requirement, right? Ten hours of study before you open your mouth. It really should be like a, a rule. But in Protestant churches, we don't follow that rule. You just, I read it, here's what it means. Well, how much time have you spent? Doesn't matter, I don't care, I know everything. Right? That, in some ways, I, I want to make this clear, In some ways, the attitudes of Protestants have actually been a better apologetic for the Catholic position than an argument against it. The way Protestants handle the Bible leads, at times, have wanted me to go back, wanted me to run to Catholicism, because at least within Catholicism, I'm protected from all of the craziness of the average Protestant who thinks they're a Bible scholar, because it it becomes very irritating. And Protestants don't realize what they're doing. You're literally literally pushing people to Catholicism. If you haven't studied it, don't speak. That's the only way to fix it. Now, some would argue you should, you know, I don't believe that means you have to go to Bible college. I don't believe that you have to go to seminary. But you've got to be preparing yourself to know actually how to deal with the text. All right? So I think that's a major problem right there, is we've got to get, we've got to stop that. We've got to stop that. Here's another thing that I think is important. So uh, I, I think Protestants have to realize when we say the Bible defines it that in some ways we're saying we define it, which is major. Everyone should agree that's problematic. We can't define the faith. Does everybody understand that? Right. So, that, so that's a problem. People have got to stop with acting like that they know what they're saying when they don't know what they're saying. It's just, it's just embarrassing. But this is very important. Protestants cannot ignore the fact that the church, for at least 330 years, was absolute, absolutely critical in defining the faith, and therefore we should do what? What should, what should be the result of of us acknowledging that the church really was very critical in defining the faith for the first 330 years. That we should know their definitions. We should have their definitions memorized. We should know what they said at the Council of Nicaea. We should know the Nicene Creed. We should know the Athanasian Creed. We should know the Apostles' Creed. We should know these creeds, because if we don't know these creeds, then what do these creeds help what do these creeds help the Protestant do? Yeah, it at least provides a curb, right? Like you're over here reading the Bible, and you're like, blah, 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 blah. And someone could go, well, blah, 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 blah doesn't match what's right here. It at least keeps us somewhat close to the right highway. Right? Where we're not at least, you know, off in a field somewhere, you know, running over cows. At least we can be on the right paved road, right? That's at least there. This is very important. You have to have a defined faith. A faith not defined is a meaningless, useless faith. All right? Now, I know most people here t- this morning wasn't here last week, but I said it over and over and over, that we, uh, we're going to be talking about invasion, we're going to be talking about insurgency, and obviously I'm going to be speaking of invasion and insurgency as something that attacks the faith. The only way to defend the faith is to define the faith. The only way to stand against invasion and insurgency of the faith is to define the faith. The faith has to be defined. What's the problem, even, for, even in the Protestant world? What is the problem, even, again, even in the Protestant world, what is the problem of someone simply holding up a Bible going, this defines the faith? What's the problem with that? Well what does that mean? Right? There's 66 books, right? No, no, no. I'm just saying if you just say this defines the faith, what's the problem with that? Well what part define oh, like that doesn't mean that that's a meaningless statement. Right? That's a meaningless statement. This defines the faith. Okay? So you start at okay, baptism. You say this defines the faith, baptism. Does any all the people who use the bibles, there agreement on baptism? Lord's Supper. Is there agreement on Lord's Supper? Salvation. Is there agreement on salvation? No. Is there agreement on uh, ecclesiology? No. Eschatology? No. Soteriology? No. I mean, there's not agreement on anything. So just to say this defines the faith somewhat is a meaningless statement. It sounds super spiritual, but it is meaningless. So what do we need we have to have summaries or definitions of the faith that we say are based off scripture but at least it's something that 66 books is just a like defi- defines what i mean like that's 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 too too broad of a term you have to say, no, this statement comes from the scripture, and it, that's why you need confessions of faith, you need catechisms, and you need creeds, because that at least lays down a framework. right? I can say, you could stand up in the back of the church and go, this defines the faith, and I could stand up here going, this defines the faith, and that doesn't give a definition of anything. Right? So then we'd have to go, okay, well, let's start in Genesis. And then we'd have to go verse by verse by verse by verse. Go. what do you think? What do I think? What do you think? And, what I think? and we know before we, got through, before we got through 10 verses of Genesis 1, there would already be disagreement and church split. Yes? So, I mean, it's just, the, it's just the reality of it. So we live in a day and age where people don't want to define the faith. Because what happens when you define the faith? Defining the faith divides, that's a fact. However, if you don't define the faith, then the faith becomes a meaningless nothing. To define it divides, to not define it destroys it. To define it divides, to not define it destroys it. It, you no longer have the faith, you end up with a faith. all right. But the faith has to be defined, and that's what protects it. The problem, many Christians cannot define the faith in any meaningful way. Or they become the definer of the faith. Now, this, this leads to all the, re- the, all the problems. Look, Protestants put themselves in this p- position. Just remember, it w- Protestants reject what? The authority of the church. So they say the church can't define the faith. The Bible defines the faith. All right, what does that mean? Well, then that means that I get to define the faith, right? So then every Protestant gets to define the faith for themselves based off their interpretation of Scripture. This leads to massive problems. We, we can't, look, we can't ignore it. We can pretend all day. Now, I, now I know the, the alternative is what? The alternative is to go to what to find the church, I guess the Roman Catholic Church. See, they define the faith, but what's the problem with that? Well, what if they're, they're, first, you've got a history of corruption, but remember, even if you go back, what was happening between the council, just go back to the life of Athanasius. What was happening to Athanasius? Exiled. This this bishop would do that and this person would execute. They were fighting amongst themselves even then. I mean, you could argue that the Council of Trent, you could argue that the Council of Trent completely rejected Augustinian understanding of depravity and adopted more of a semi-Pelagian one. You could almost make an argument for that. Well, Well, wait a minute. Augustine is one of the doctors of the Catholic Church. How can the Council of Trent almost abandon that to go with Pelagius who was condemned as a heretic? Like that, that, that raises all kinds of issues there. All right. So there's the definition of the faith. I wanted to get to invasion and but we can't because it's 1057. So we'll stop right there. All right. We'll just stop there and hopefully that was beneficial. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to study the, the history of how the faith was defined and help us just understand the importance of defining it and, and acknowledging how that defi- those definitions came into being. We ask this in Jesus' name and God's people said.